There was a lot of regret about the way people were parenting. And, and that's what my mom friends were talking about the most. You know, there was a lot that that's really what was, you know, on the text messages, on the text change with, with a lot of confessions about anger and rage. And that really worked its way into this book. I'm Nathan Maharaj, and this is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is the novelist Ashley Audrey author of the internationally best-selling 2021 novel, The Push. And she has a new book. Playing out over three days with a trio of families in a nice neighborhood at its center, plus there's another family at the periphery, The Whispers is a story about marriage, mothers and motherhood, and parenthood generally, and also women's rage. Ashley Eldrain, welcome to Kobo. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to chat with you today. I am so delighted to have you. This book has a lot, um, there's a lot of conversation to have about it. But to get us started, can you just set us up a little bit with the with those three women that are right at the center of the whispers? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So um, so it, it's essentially a story about these, um, you know, well, three families, as you said, and another, another family on the periphery who live on Harlow Street. And these women, you know, they don't quite realize the ways in which all of their lives are connected um, until there's a tragedy that happens on the street one night with one of the families. And that tragedy sort of acts as this thread that's pulled, you know, and that then unravels the lives of, of these three women. Um, and so we have, you know, they they are all, they, they sort of, I'm looking out onto my street as I speak to you, because I sort of picture them sort of out there, but there's, you know, sort of the four houses, so two across from two houses. Um, and in one house, we have um, Whitney, and Whitney is, um, she is sort of this, you know, she's sort of everything we think a mother should not be, you know, in this very mm. sort of stereotypical way. She's, you know, she's extremely focused on her career and on her profession. She's very sort of hungry for um, success professionally and for wealth, you know, her own wealth, making her own money. Um, she is not, she doesn't feel that motherhood really comes all that naturally to her. You know, she has three children, she's married, um, but, you know, she is sort of a, a woman who would rather sort of stay late at the office, you know, mm-hmm. preparing for the next day's presentation than, than she would be kind of coming home to deal with bedtime and bath time yeah. and, and, and all the children. And so she is across the street from her best friend, Blair. And, you know, Blair is the opposite in many ways. Blair is sort of what I think of as this martyr mother. You know, she's sort of everything is devoted to her child. She has a daughter, one daughter. Um, And she's given up a lot in her life, you know, over the years, um, over the past decade, you know, through her 30s, um, gave up a lot of what she had, you know, a lot of independence, her own career, her own money um, to really to be this, you know, sort of a this idea of a stay at home mom. and she's Blair is in a marriage that is very unsatisfying for her. Um, you know, her whole life, in a sense, feels sort of unsatisfying, but she cannot quite put her finger on exactly what that is or what the problem is. Um, and so these two best friends sort of, you know, each look at each other and um, see the thing that they themselves lack, um, you know, but they, but they love each other dearly as friends and their children are best friends. And then we have Rebecca who um, lives in one of the other houses. And Rebecca is um, does not have children of her own, however, is trying desperately to be one. You know, she is able to get pregnant quite easily, but she loses her pregnancy sort of over mm-hmm. and over. She suffers from recurring miscarriages. Um, and Rebecca is 
um, a physician at um, a children's hospital in the emergency room. And so she spends her days, you know, guided by medicine and fact and, you know, very much helping everyone else to keep their children well and healthy um, while she sort of silently struggles with not being able to have, you know, keep her own healthy um, or have her own. Um, and she's sort of told by doctors that all she can do is have hope, you know, and mm. pray for miracles. And yet, um, you know, she's she's guided by something by a sort of very different philosophy, you know, in her day to day life, um, caring for everybody else. Um, and then the fourth woman we hear from is Mara. And Mara is in her 80s. And she is, um, you know, many years ago, 60 plus years ago, she um, came to the street from Portugal. She's an immigrant, was mm -hmm. an immigrant family with her and her husband. Um, and they had a son. And um, she is this sort of access this sort of voyeur on the street you know she doesn't interact much with these other three women in their families and they don't interact with her they sort of look over her and look through her um and yet she is there every day on her porch you know watching their worlds go by and observing so much more about them than they would ever imagine um and so she's sort of a special character on the periphery as you say she is right she's she's more than a watcher at a distance too. I think, I think the book could have worked with that. You could have just made her a watcher in the distance and there's, there's some plot points where you'd stick her in, mm -hmm. but she's so much more than that because she's experienced a lot of, a lot of what these, these other women who are very different from her have gone through. Uh, she's experienced it in a very different way in terms of both ethnicity, generations, just, you know, personal situation, but she gets it. Yes. Like if they talked to Mara, they would find out she's been there. But nobody does, and nobody really knows her. Tell me about how you figured her out as a character, because it feels like the kind of thing that could have could have been so much less, but but you bring her to life. Oh, thank you for asking that. And thank you for asking about Mara and, and for noticing that, because, you know, um, I feel like you're exactly right. I, I loved this idea of Mara. Um, I love the idea of these three other women, you know, being in midlife, you know, they are sort of one is late thirties, others are early forties. And they're sort of, they're hungry for wisdom. You know, they are just, they are hungry for the wisdom of midlife, you know, and they are, they are, there's so much they're trying to figure out about, you know, identity and place in the world and all of it. And, and Mara knows, <laughs> Mara has so many of the answers, you know, Mara has this, this life, um, such a life lived where you're exactly right. She, she's gone through so much of what they're going through. And I think the sort of the heartbreak is that, you know, she could share so much wisdom with these women if only they asked her, you know, if only they saw her as more than just this woman across the street who, you know, who, you know, who, who doesn't, who just kind of watches them all with this sort of look on her face. Mm. Um, and so there was such this disconnect there. And it's funny, it's funny you say that the, that the book <laughs> could have existed with her in such a different role because, you know, for she was, Mara was always a part of the book from the beginning, but there were revisions um, along the way, like big edits along the way. And my editors at one point had said to me, you know, I think maybe you can just take Mara out. She's not really doing enough. She sort of is just this warrior, as you said, she could have been, you know, she could have just been this person who sort of, you know, play has a has a hand and a plot point here or there. Um, and is sort of there for atmosphere purposes. But um, but isn't much more than that. And at one point I, I had sort of considered taking her out, but I, but I loved Mara so much. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, she was so much more than she was on the page. And so at one point I had sort of said, okay, can you give me one more chance to save Mara? <laughs> you know, one more chance to sort of build her character into something that feels so much more the heart of the book mm -hmm. than it was. Um, and so I did, I, I spent a lot of time sort of working on Mara to make her more, you know, to make, to make her play this sort of, in some ways she sort of is this kind of 
like underlying heartbeat of of what all these women are going through. Um, and so then she then she sort of turned into a lot more. And I'm happy she did because I, I do. She is my you're not supposed to have favorites, but she is my favorite. <laughs> of the I think I think I, I think I had a sense of that from um, just from the details of her of her interiority. Oh, thank you. So we've we've laid out these four these four women. There are men in the book. The men the men are pencil sketches. Um, there's not a lot of their interiority. We get a sense of how the women feel about them. Mm -hmm. um, certainly the interior lives of the women are impacted by their relationships with these men. The only time I think we actually get a lot of interior um, stuff from, from any man is the opening pages with some unnamed man's interior monologue. And I have to say, I completely forgot that was there mm. until I was preparing for this interview. That was, uh, and that was shocking to me, to be, to be honest, that I, that I had forgotten that that was there, but, um, was that a, was that a conscious decision to push these guys to get them to step into the, into the wings or did the book just fill with the interior lives of these women? And that was, that was just going to be how it was. Yeah. Great question. I, so, you know, at one point actually, I did have I did have sort of more about the interiority of the men. I, I had I actually had some chapters throughout that sort of showed us a little more of their points of view. But ultimately, I think I sort of felt I, I then sort of decided not to do that and took them out. And I, ultimately, mm -hmm. I thought I was OK. I love how you describe them as sort of these pencil sketches, because I think ultimately I decided I was OK with them being these sort of pencil sketches that sort of play in this background to to this really deep dive on these four other women. Mm. Um, and, and part of that is just this, you know, sort of a logistic thing where like you can only deep dive on so many people at once. And I, I really wanted us to be fully, fully in the minds of these four women, which, mm -hmm. you know, is a challenge in itself to sort of give four characters where you really want to feel, you know, distinctly, you know, what their interior life is. Um, and, and trying to do that with the men too just started to feel too much. Um, but also it just, I mean, to be totally honest, it just from the, from the sort of the storytelling perspective of it, um, and not to say anything bad about these poor men <laughs> that I've created, but, but their, their perspective did not feel that important to me mm -hmm. in this, in this particular story. It just didn't feel that important. Um, and it sort of felt like, you know, there are, without without any spoilers, of course, you know, there are some men in the story who we learn have made some very poor decisions. Mm -hmm. And I almost didn't feel like I wanted to give them um, the the I didn't want to have them sort of explain why they why they did the things they did, um, because I think it was it just it almost felt too justifying. And I didn't want to do that with them. I really just wanted to stick to why these women were feeling the way they were. Um, but I did put a lot of time into sort of thinking about these men, you know, and, and a lot of conversations, you know, with um, actually my my partner um, was very, very helpful with a lot of the character character development at the beginning of this book. And he and I would have many conversations about the men in this book and and really trying to understand why the men were doing what they were doing and how that would impact the women. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's something I didn't end up writing about, but I thought a lot about and sort of mm -hmm. how that would how that would influence them. Um, yeah, and you know, it's funny when I look back, I, mean, I haven't written a lot about sort of the more interior thoughts of men, but I think, I think I do want to do that a little more in my next book. So that's, it's a good thing for me to think of. Look, look Philip Roth didn't feel the need to write interior, <laughs> interiority of women. So you, you, you that's don't, right. you don't have homework here. You do whatever you want to do. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. We do get little flashes of sinister potential mm -hmm. with each of these guys, uh, in, in service of the tone and the, and where this where this all is going. And it's fun. It's again, one of those things that I don't, I 
I, I am slow to pick up on these things, but, but it came back in, in revisiting. Is that something that came to you in the creation of the characters? This is who they are and this mm. is the harm they might do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of start with that. I do. I sort of start with that, um, that little bit of mischievousness in everybody, you know, that little bit of like, ultimately I, I was thinking this the other day about someone else, but I was thinking that, um, you know, ultimately, I think all of my characters, you know, you you think of your characters as, you know, good people that make bad choices. And I think mm. you sort of have to think of your characters that way, because you you have to understand them with so much empathy, you know, in order to write about them well. And so, you know, everybody is sort of this good person for me that that has made a, a bad decision or 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 entertains a little too much the mischievous thinking or the mischievous side of them, you know, that gets them into trouble. Um, and so without that little bit of darkness, that little bit of sinister, you know, decision in them, um, we don't really have an interesting character, you know, and, and I think all of the characters, you know, whether they are your primary characters or they live on the periphery or they live as pencil sketches or whatever role they play in your book. Um, I almost see, you know, everybody has that in, in, in my books or so everyone has made sort of some kind of decision that way or some kind of choice or behavior. Um, so I really, I really do start with that. And then kind of, I sort of see that as this kind of this little beat in the middle of them and then kind of build out the character from there. So it, mm. it, it is really important to me. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't imagine sort of coming up with just, um, with just sort of a character that is just this very sort of, you know, neutral or likable person and then trying to think of something bad for them to do. That, that to me would be the reverse of the way I think about a character. Yeah. Whitney struggles with her performance of motherhood and she struggles against ideals that she feels measured against. Um, mm. we also get a sense of everybody measuring themselves against everybody else. And I admit it feels relatable that competitiveness is so toxic, but you write it so well. And, and I wonder, does dramatizing it like this and exploring it and making it ring true, does it make you less apt to fall into the same thinking traps or are you just really good at taking notes when you're down in there? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think I am really good at taking notes when I'm down in there. That's a, that's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it that I really relate to. Um, I think that, you know, there, th this, this idea of the comparison and the competitive nature we all have with you know, the people we love the most even is so interesting to me. And I, I really feel, I really, I, I really was interested in this idea of envy, you know, and the envy that we have um, in so many different relationships in our lives. But, but often I think, you know, I, I really touch on it here between female friends. And I think that, you know, so often I observe, um, and I'm speaking just, you know, of women here because I am writing about women, women, and I and I am a woman, obviously. But I I, I really observe that sort of, um, you know, see people sometimes speak about another woman or another friend in a way that can be um, that that can maybe sound like, um, oh, I don't know, I just don't connect with them. Oh, I don't know, they just sort of rub me in the wrong way, or oh, there's something about her I don't know, and and the sort of sometimes we sort of have we hit this edge within ourselves, you know, when when we have this relationship with someone else or a friendship with someone else or an acquaintance, and and what I really oftentimes what I actually think that is 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 envy, you know, it is mm. it is this envy that we can't quite place or we don't want to name because it is because envy is such an uncomfortable thing that we associate so many negative feelings with you know but but it is in all of us and I think there is an element of envy in almost every single relationship or friendship that we have 
Um, but it is so hard to name and it is so hard to sort of identify sometimes. And so, and, and often really, of course, like all, I think what MD is really showing us is what we want that we don't have, right? That, that is what MD is. And so I think when you look at it between, between female friendships, um, there's, there's so many layers and it can be such a complex feeling to have, um, and such a complex feeling to deal with and, and can become so toxic. And yet it is like, so it is just so common, you know, it's such a, such a common thing. And so I wanted to play with that feeling that sort of goes back and forth between Blair and Whitney, you know, they each envy something deeply, you know, in each other. And yet, um, I think they also, as you mentioned, they sort of, they also love to spend time with one another because it sort of gets them closer you know, to that thing that they really want that they don't have. And so there's that curiosity too, you know? And so, yes, as you mentioned that, that idea of this quota, you know, Whitney really feels like she wants to be a better, uh, you know, quote unquote, better mother. She wants to feel more maternal. She wants to be more affectionate with her children. She wants to like being with her children so much more than she does. And so she does enjoy spending time with Blair and the kids because it sort of fills something in her, you know, it, it is a way for her to have access to that behavior and those emotions when they don't come naturally to, to her on her own. Um, but that, but that really comes from this place of envy. And so I, I, and I think there's also this sort of power imbalance we see between them that also exists in a lot of friendships, you know, mm-hmm. this sort of, this sort of trading back and forth of who has more power at certain times in life. Um, and I, and I find all of that dynamic so interesting and I, I totally relate to it. And I've been in those friendships and been in those situations too. And, and so, yeah, I am, I am not beyond that, <laughs> I am, but I think I, I think I, I like to think about it and analyze it and, uh, and write about it. Yeah. It's also distancing that envy that's that as much as it binds Blair and Whitney, it also means that it's effectively, that's the plexiglass that's going to be between them. Mm, yes. That's a, that's a distance that will never be bridged. As you set up a book, as you set the the mechanics of plot in motion and you've got characters wanting what they want, is that distance natural to you? Do you ever have to dig a moat between people? Hmm. Or uh, or do you do you just as you as you start from a dark heart and then build a character up, do those moats already exist as well? Yeah. Oh yes, that's a that's a great observation about loneliness, I think. And and I, yeah, that, that is not, that is sort of the natural state of my characters, I would say. I don't really have to work to get there. There's, they're sort of already there. They sort of start there. Mm-hmm. And I think, I really think that loneliness, I'm, I'm interest, really interested in this idea of loneliness. And I think especially as it applies to like women in families. And I think uh, definitely men too, but I, 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 which is, I think a whole other actually interesting topic of men and loneliness, but, but with women and the women in this book, like there's something about um, if you are a mother and you are you are exuding love, you are responsible for the love in your family. You are, um, you know, you are the center of everybody in that house, and you are constantly surrounded by people you love and you've made and you've chosen and all of this. And yet, I and so I think it is. I think feeling loneliness as a mother is such mm. a hard thing to feel and admit. Um, because you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be by, by nature of what mothering is, you know, and that what that role is um, to be lonely feels like, well, there's something wrong with you or you're not doing it right or you're missing something. Um, but I think loneliness, I think there's a lot of loneliness in motherhood and a lot of loneliness in a lot of people's marriages. You know, we know that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I find, I just find that that emotion, especially for a mother, sort of in the thick of raising a family, 
um, to be really, really sad, you know, sort of a poignant thing. And I, and I, and I, I do, I do, I think most of my characters have experienced that in some way. Um, and even though you are, you know, you, there, there's the, yes, there's this idea of sort of loneliness and sort of having this plexiglass, as it said, sort of in between characters. And the, and I think the contrast to that, which I think is where the tension can come from, is the fact that, you know, in this book, they are, they are, they are almost suffocating each other physically. You know, they have this emotional loneliness and this emotional distance. You're absolutely right. And yet they cannot get away from each other because they are across the street. They are neighbors. They are crossing paths all the time. They are seeing the garbage they put out on garbage day. They are hearing, you know, the yelling through the house. They are watching whose car is coming and going. They see who's who's up at two in the morning because their light's on in their bedrooms and they can't sleep. Like there, there is this almost claustrophobic sense of all, all being in such close proximity and yet having this huge emotional emotional gulf and so I think there's a lot of tension that can come from that and and so that made it sort of fun to write about you know yeah well I mean it's it's a novel about the lack of anonymity available to you in in a in a suburban setting mm. you never get to just be a, a you're never just a person walking by on the sidewalk you are specifically you identifiable to um, to the the person who owns the space you're exactly proximal to, because you're always yes. exactly proximal to somebody's space. Yes, it's it's an easy thing to lose sight of because it, it's normal for a lot of us live in suburbs. A lot of us grew up in suburbs. A lot of us have a weird feeling about it, but don't can't quite put a finger on it. But this book, a little bit in that way, felt like it did put a finger on it. Of mm. of you are you are known. You will be known. Um, but also kept at a distance. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, like as you're, as you're nodding vigorously with my, with my, uh, <laughs> uh, with my uh, uh, thesis on our, our urbanism, um, is that something that can surprise you that the setting is doing a kind of work that maybe you didn't realize it was going to do? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because it's funny when I started, when I came up with the idea for this book um, and I will say too, a, a funny thing with this is that um, I think now sort of, and this part of this is sort of, um, you know, the way a publisher talks about a book or markets yeah. a book. And, <laughs> and we, we, you know, we talk about it like a, like, like they are, like they're in the suburbs and in many, yeah. and, I, and I think, you know, in many ways they are sort of this, this idea of the street that I've drawn, but when I, but, but my initial um, thinking of the book, I mean, we, we both live in Toronto. We're both yeah. here in Toronto, right? Um, I was living in little Portugal in Toronto, which, you know, isn't a suburb, it's a neighborhood in a, in a city, but um but, but Toronto can kind of be like that, you know, pockets of neighborhoods that sort of have this sort of feel that you would also get in a suburb where you've got all of these families living, you know, close to one another on the yeah. street. And, and it was, and it was that sense of, um, you know, the old and the new all together and everybody starting their family on the street, um, you know, and then, and then these older Portuguese families sort of in between who had not touched their house, you know, mm -hmm. in 70 years. And you just know that in the next five years, they're going to have to move out and some younger family will come in and tear down the house and rebuild some, you know, modern thing. And, yeah. and it was, it was just this, there was that, that sort of underlying tension in that neighborhood at the time. Um, and, and, and I loved the idea of sort of writing about that, you know, and, and that's kind of where this idea of Mara came, who, who I lived next door to this, to, to somebody exactly like Mara, you know, a couple that were in their eighties and they, they spent their life on their porch and mm -hmm. I just, and we lived there for almost 10 years and, you know, had our two kids there and started our life there. And I felt I could just, 
I, I, lo I loved her, you know, I loved them. I loved that they were there, but I also felt so watched by them. You know, I felt so almost so monitored, like my life was sort of being monitored by them. And, and there was, you know, all the, it, it was just, there was something about that street that I just thought, oh, I really want to write about this. I really want to write about like what happens on a street like this. And so, so a lot of it came from there. But then when I, I, and I actually didn't think that much about the setting and the proximity, it was sort of just this kicking off point. But to your point, I think when I was revising the book, it was through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think we all sort of changed our relationship with our street, with our neighbors, with our community during the pandemic. You know, here in Toronto, we were under lockdown for so long and our kids were home from school so much. Um, and it was sort of your, your, your world was just what you could see outside of your front window. Like that was it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us sort of felt this sort of, again, that sort of claustrophobic feeling of like, you know, only seeing the houses you were surrounded by and you sort of got tight with your neighbors very quickly. And, um, and so I, and so that energy through the pandemic as, as I was revising definitely shows up in the book and, and the setting then became so much more in the book, I think through those revisions for that reason. Um, because I don't, I don't actually think of myself as a writer who's really driven by setting at all, but it, but it, like, it's sort of the last thing I think of normally. Um, but in this book, it did turn out to be such a strong piece. Um, and of course there's sort of, you know, the, the logistics of a plot and the coming and going and who sees who, when, and the timelines and, you know, it is told over the course of these three tense days. So, so, so it did become quite, quite important in the end. Mm -hmm. But there's also the particular loneliness of, of parenthood. Mm. the the isolating um aspect of it that you're you're kind of in it on your own you're carrying you're carrying these things on your own um and the need to be the need to be all things to mm -hmm. your kid mm -hmm. that we don't we don't live in in structures that allow us to like um to perform to our strengths like maybe maybe we don't know but maybe whitney is the kind of parent who would be amazing with teenagers like like she could she could be the most awesome mom of teenagers but we haven't we haven't built a world in which she gets to sit on the bench and let the aunties deal with the kids yes. until they're 13 then she gets to step in and play to her strengths she has to be amazing at, at infants amazing at at, at young kids etc I mean, if there's a question in here, it's just, my God, what a hard thing to write when you're, you're in it like that. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment where you thought this is, this is too heavy. This is, this is something I need to, I need to retreat from for a bit. Oh, you know, it's funny. I almost felt the opposite in a sense that, I mean, I, I like so many parents, I mean, I know you're a parent, you probably relate to this, but it's, it's, there is, um, not, there was no harder time to parent than during the pandemic, you know, and and I really felt that. And I, look, I, like there, I, there was just nothing harder than than mm. that time for so many reasons. But I, but I almost found writing about parenting at that time in this way, um, and you know, going through what these characters do to be this really therapeutic thing, you know. And I and I think I found that with the push too, you know, when I, I started that book when my son was six months old and he had all kinds of really difficult health problems at the beginning of his life. And it was just, just a dark, challenging time. And I really found this sort of real sense of, like, it was just sort of this cathartic therapeutic thing to be writing about other people who were, other mothers who were going through, you know, hard times. And so, and, and so in a way there was all of this real tension and darkness about parenting through the pandemic that I think does show up on the page. And, and so I, I think in a way it sort of served me, although, although actually finding the time and the focus to write during those years was very, very difficult. That was its own challenge. But, you know, um, you mentioned off the very top about the idea of rage and anger in this mm -hmm. book. 
And one of the takeaways that I had from the pandemic um, in talking to a lot of my friends who were parents um, was, was that it was, a t- it, it, I think it really, I mean, we were, an- we all were angry about so much, you know, on a larger scale during the pandemic, of course, it was, it was the hardest time for everybody. Um, but, uh, and there were a lot, you know, lots of really difficult, obviously situations for people. I, and I think for parents who were home with kids, um, the big struggle was anger and, and rage and patience. And how do you, no, I don't know one person who felt like they were parenting at their best or even remotely close to it, you know, during that time. And I think a lot of parents, you know, were really struggling with what do I do with this anger as a mom? Like a lot of, a lot of mothers, I think were struggling with like, I, I can't get through the day without yelling. I can't get through the day without, you know, exploding. I can't get through the day with any sense of patience. Um, and I don't like who I am mm-hmm. as a mother, uh, you know, as a result of that. Um, and it, it was just, it was, it, it, I think most mothers really felt that way. Um, and I and I think people didn't know what to do with that, you know, didn't know how to cope with that, didn't know um, how to make that okay with their kids. And there was a lot of regret about the way people were parenting. And, and that's what my mom friends were talking about the most. You know, there was a lot that that's really what was, you know, on the text messages on the text change was, was a lot of confessions about anger and rage. Um, and that really worked its way into this book. Um, I mean, it was sort of there at the, at the beginning in a different way. And then you know, we sort of see that that is like a, a real thing that Whitney struggles with. And it, it becomes this really kicking off this sort of instigating incident at the beginning of the book, you know, where Whitney has this explosion of rage in a very public way, you know, yeah. and, and and she says at the end of that chapter, you know, once she realizes she, she's that in a backyard, she's hosting this very beautiful backyard party. Um, and she has this, you know, explosion of rage on her young son. And she realizes then that everybody has heard the bedroom window is open and everyone has heard. And she hears sort of the hush um, in the backyard and and knows that she's sort of been exposed. She feels very exposed. She says almost like she's standing naked, you know, in front of these people. It is that exposing, I think, to have that emotion in front of people. Um, and she says then at, at the end of that chapter that, you know, she knows then exactly what she has lost. Um, and she has lost something, you know, with all of those people who have heard her. Um, and I and I think that that, you know, there, there's so much shame and so much judgment um, tied to like an expression of rage as a woman and as a mother. Um, I think men can be angry in a way that women can't um, in a lot of ways. Um, or at least I should say, like, you know, white men can be, you know, very angry in a way that mm-hmm. um, that mothers can't. And yeah, I, I, I wanted to just. To, to write about that and to give that experience to Whitney and see the way that people around her reacted and how she tries to recover from that. And if she can ever recover from that. In terms of interiority, we don't get a lot um, of interiority of the kids. Mm. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly we've got Chloe Blair's daughter and, and Whitney's son, Xavier. Um, we, we hear their voices They're They're in scenes. Um, one thing we do get though is, is a sense of their hurt mm. and more than that. And this is the, like the, the part that's really like, that really just hits me like in the chest is the inevitability of kids getting hurt by, by imperfect parents, mm. parents who don't rage even as hard as Whitney will still, will still mess things up. Um, there's, there's a point where, where Blair is observing Chloe picking up on the modeling that Blair has set about the things we don't talk about and how we deal with something going unsaid. And she's seeing that and realizing, well, that's, that's me. I did that. It's, uh, it's moving. It's difficult. I wanted to ask, was it, was it hard to write that? Hmm. 
Yeah, you know, I do. I find that very moving as well. I find that a very emotional thought. Um, the idea that, um, you know, as parents, we can have the best intentions in the world and we can try our very, very hardest every day. And all of us do, you know, we do all of these things. Um, but but the fact that you are, there are still ways that you are going to hurt your children. Mm-hmm. And, and there are still ways you're going to impact them in, in ways that they will carry for the rest of their life, you know? Um, and I, I, that, that is a real heartbreaking thought to me as well. And I think, it, and maybe it's because it, it, there's such an inevitability about that. Like it's, um, and so I do like to write about that. I think I've written about that in sort of both my books, um, about, you know, these children who are affected in very deep, profound ways by their parents, you know, whether or not they had intended that or not. Um, and, and I think it's a hard thing as a parent too, because, you know, like my kids are eight and six and um, so they're still young, but I, I think about that all, I think all the time, you know, yeah. about, um, I don't know if you feel like this too, but you, you sort of think all the time about like your actions, your behaviors, how they're watching you, what they're learning from you, the idea of, you know, the modeling, like what, what, how, what you're modeling emotionally and socially, um, you're just, you're constantly feeding them and constantly impacting them, even when you don't want to be, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that's just the nature of the relationship, you know, but it also, it makes me think like, I know, um, you know, some people will go, will start therapy, will go to therapy, you know, adults will go to therapy and in their first, and a therapist had told me this once that, um, like, even if you're doing something like, you know, psychoanalysis or something quite deep, you know, oftentimes when a therapist asks somebody about their past or their childhood, you know, so many people will say, no, I had a wonderful childhood. Like I had a great childhood. My parents were loving. We were totally normal. No, whatever I'm suffering from, it has nothing to do with my childhood. No, my parents are great. Yeah. And then the sessions will move on and the months will continue. And then that same adult will realize that no, like so much of what I am carrying, so much of my behavior, so so much of the reason why I'm in therapy is connected to my childhood, you know, to, mm. to the way that I was treated, the way I was meant to feel. And none of it is intentional from your parents. Yeah. You know, none of it is. And that I think that's just that's just life. You know, we can't really get away from that. And um, and it's, you know, like it's a, it's a real privilege to be able later in life to explore that, you know, through something like therapy or have the awareness of that. Um, but I just think that's just this really interesting thing in the way we are wired as people, um, both on the, the adult parent side and on the, on the child side. Um, and so that, that has worked its way, I think, into both of my books. And it's just something that I'm just interested in writing. And, and I think it gives children, I think in a way it's a bit of a nod to children, you know, that, that, that they are there and they matter and they have often... So they're, they're often, they're just so much smarter and so much more observant than we often want to give them credit for. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about Blair and Whitney. We haven't been talking about Rebecca. Mm. And and it's kind of a hard reason why we're not talking about Rebecca. It's because a lot of what we've been talking about has been parenting. And Rebecca, despite her and Ben's um, best efforts, um, she is, they, they have, they have, they have failed to, to, to be able to bring a baby to, to term. That is, uh, that's a hard thing to put in a book. That's a, one of those issues that just has a lot of gravity to it mm-hmm. and will pull a lot towards it. Can you tell me about shaping that character of Rebecca and putting her in, in that mix? Yes. No. And thank you for asking about that, about that and her, um, you know, Rebecca is, she started as a character, you know, I, I, I think there was two things. I, I, my son has spent a lot of time at sick kids hospital in Toronto um, really his whole life. He's, as I said, he's eight years old. So it's sort of eight years of kind of being in that hospital environment. And I'm all, I've, I'd always been quite fascinated by um, the the people that work there, by, you know, by the doctors that work there. 
um, especially in sort of you know the, the the really high pressure situations like the ER and like the ICU. Um, and 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 in every interaction I have with doctors in that environment, I I always you know maybe it's just because I'm a writer, but I always I, my mind always goes to you know as we're talking about the medical stuff and all of that, I'm always in the background thinking like what is this like for you? You know, mm. if you like dealing with these parents and dealing with these children and do you have children and do you have a family and, and why have you chosen to do something so difficult? Like that is an emotional, difficult job. And thank God there are such angels in this world, you know, that want to do that work, but it is quite the choice, you know, to decide mm. to, to work in a children's hospital like that in those, in those situations and, you know, deal with children who are facing death and families who are losing their children and, and all of that. Um, and so I, I, I thought about that so much that I did want to write a character, you know, who who had made the decision to do what Rebecca does, which is to work in the ER at a children's hospital. Um, so that that was sort of where where she sort of started. And then there was this other piece that I kind of layered onto Rebecca because I thought it was just this really like what what a complex um, conflict for a person to to be to choose to to work in that environment and devote their lives to that and then also not be able to have a child of their own you know to be caring and nurturing for all of these other children all day and not be able to have that themselves um it, it is a cruel thing you know it is a cruel a cruel thing to do to a character but it but but there's something so interesting about that to me um and and you know in addition to that so when, when i was having my children um, you know, I'm so lucky to have two, but I, within that mix, I had three miscarriages myself and, and one, including one being my first pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And I think, and, and those really hit very hard, you know, because, because it is, you know, the first time you're pregnant, you have all these ideas and dreams about what that will be. Um, and if you miscarry, then, you know, you, you really worry about, will you ever have this? Like, will, will you, will your body ever be able to do this? Yeah. Um, and so, and, and I, and it's funny when I, you know, when I, looking back, and I realized this at the time, but when I was going through those experiences, I remember feeling particularly struck by how foreign of an experience that felt, just like physically and emotionally and all of it. And I would think, you know, I'm, I'm this very ed educated person. I'm sort of plugged into a lot of women's issues. I have a lot of friends that have like lots mm. of open, honest conversations. And it still felt so strange in a sense that I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know how to handle it. Yeah. Um, and I realized at that time that part of the reason why I felt that way is because that experience of losing a pregnancy was something that I had never seen reflected in any amount of detail on the page or on the screen. And it, it's one of the few experiences that I can think of, you know, in that way. I mean, there are, we, we reflect all kinds of dark, upsetting, uncomfortable experiences mm -hmm. on the screen and on page, murder, rape, abuse, all kinds yeah. of things, but we don't, but, but, but not the loss of a pregnancy, you know, in mm -hmm. that way, or, or, you know, very, very rarely. Um, and so there was something that stuck with me then that I thought, oh, this would just, would just be a really like powerful thing to write about or interesting thing to write about. And so I do write about it in, in quite a bit of detail in the book. Um, and, and, you know, we, I did have conversations with my editors around how much do you include you know, what I, I wanted to be sensitive to readers, but I also wanted to be truthful, you know, to what that experience is like. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the end, you know, there wasn't much that that was really cut or edited or pulled back. Like I, I wanted it to be true. And even if that is uncomfortable. Um, so it was important for me to include that um, for Rebecca's story. And yeah, and I and I think so far, you know, I've I've heard from so many readers um, who who who've just written to say that that resonates for them, and and that you know they have had that experience, and thank you for writing about it in a, in a way that just you know it, it can be very powerful to have an experience reflected back at you like that. Yeah, if you've been through it, as you say it, I I, re I realize that specifically what you're I think what you're getting at is is 
we see characters who lose a pregnancy. Yes. We know biographically that's a detail in their in their story. Yes. But we don't frequently um, follow them through it. Yes. And actually, and actually, like go through the mechanics of it and and the decisions Rebecca's making about driving into the hospital and am I going to stop here and what do I need and what does this feel like and and you get right into that and it's and it's uh, yeah it is a it is a rare thing but it's also it felt very felt very real. Thank you. Um. Yeah, there. I guess you had nowhere to go really for representation of that. I mean, I think of like, you know, nobody, nobody wants to write a, end up on the the like win the award for like worst sex writing of the year. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and you can go read those entries and winners, and you could be like, okay, yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> and you can go yeah. read read like books that have great sex scenes, but for representing of representing bodily stuff, it's really hard to just kind of go out on your own. I mean, and 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 as, as you've shared, you you know this firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about getting into that, about like putting that on the page and narrating narrating that. Yeah, you know, it. You're right. There's, I couldn't really. I mean, there there are a few instances um, where people have said, "Oh, like you know, so and so wrote about it, or so and so wrote about it here, or there." And and I didn't. I purposely didn't go read that because I didn't want to be influenced, you know, by by that. Um, but but it really it there's. There, I mean, it's really it is very difficult to think of a scene, you know, in, in either a, um, a book or on screen. Um, you know, it, it really is. And I think, I think um, it's so often, like you said, it's sort of this thing where, you know, we see a character pregnant and then it's like fade to black and then she is in grief, you know, or we read about a character who is pregnant and then it's, you know, next chapter, she's dealing with putting away the baby clothes, you know, forever kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, so there, there really wasn't much there, but, I, but I did have this personal experience to draw on and, and I, you know, in the past I've also drawn on kind of personal experience for things to write about. Um, and I really, I, I, I can very easily sort of go there, you know, and, and put that mm. on the page. And I, I find that, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I did, I remember years ago sort of reading, um, writing advice. Um, that I do think was from a man at the time that said, <laughs> that said, um, your writing should never be your therapy. You know, you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't, it should not be. Um, and I totally disagree. I totally disagree with that. You know, mm. I think that sometimes the most vibrant, interesting, compelling writing comes from, from just that, you know, from personal experience. And so, yeah, it was, it was, I think it was like a very therapeutic thing to kind of like go back there and remember what that was. And, and important and sort of this way of kind of marking something in a way. Um, I, I don't, I don't really struggle with that, that sort of idea of, you know, it's interesting. I don't, I, I, um, I was talking about this the other day, but I, someone said to me, why, you know, what would you, would, would you want to write more nonfiction? Would you want to write essays? Would you want to kind of write more in that space? Mm. Um, because that could be, you know, that, that, that's sort of the more natural place to kind of write about something like that, I guess. Um, but I don't, I don't have any desire to do that. I, and I think it's because I think that you can truth tell in a different way in fiction. You know, mm. it's like, it, I think, I think oftentimes the truest things we read, whether we realize it or not, are in fiction, mm. you know, and I, I like that idea and I, I'm more comfortable there. And so that's, I think what I, what I will always kind of gravitate towards. Mm. Yeah. I understand uh, for, from reading a couple of other interviews, um, you when you started writing, 
you kind of saw your own writing somehow there's there's some somewhere in the in the in the archaeology of all of this um you were picking up kind of in the lineage of the girl on the train or you joined the publishing industry and that was like mm-hmm. the biggest thing uh which itself was building on uh gone girl um and then creating this whole like domestic noir thing can you can you talk about the assumptions and kind of attitude maybe that you were approaching writing with at that time? Yeah, yes. Um, it's funny, when I when I started writing The Push, um, I didn't know, I didn't have any plan for what it would be or what it would be perceived as or this category that it would be. I, I really was just writing from a place of this character and wanting to write through experience, like this experience of this darker side of motherhood. Um, and I, I don't think I knew, you know, where it was going or what it was going to be. And actually, I I did not read thrillers. I never read in this category at all. I was not a thriller reader. I, I never even read like anything close to it. I was really more of a really like women's fiction, more literary sort of fiction um, was all I ever read. And so that category was sort of very foreign to me. But I was working in publishing at the time mm-hmm. for a couple of years where we crossed paths in a former life. This is why this is such a familiar chat. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and so in that time, as you'll remember well, um, you know, Gone Girl had was out. And then I, and when I started writing, it was 2015. And I think 2014, Girl on a Train had come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had read some of that actually on submission when I was working at Penguin Canada. We, we had read some of that before it became sort of, you know, what, what it was. Um, and I and there was another book actually that you might remember um, that was by a writer who is who's passed um, ASA Harrison. It was called The Silent Wife. The Do you Silent remember that Wife, book? Yes. Yeah, it was huge. And so that was published by Penguin Canada, where I worked. Um, and I really loved that book. It was sort of this. It was in that vein, but sort of this alternating perspective between a husband and wife. Um, and I I love that fiction. I I don't know that I thought I could ever be in that category or replicate that or or be that. But, but I think what that did, what those books did, I think for writers like me is it was almost, it was permission to be writing from the voice of a a very dark female, you know, narrator from, it it was permission to be writing in that space um, in a way that was this, you know, I I really loathe the term sort of this idea of this unlikable female character, you Mm. know, but, but that, but that was what those, those books were told from this perspective. And it was so, compelling and so interesting to me. And I want, that's the voice that I wanted to be in. So for me, it was sort of that those books, I think were just this permission to go there in this very dark space. Um, and, and that was quite inspiring for sure. Mm-hmm. And then I think, I, and I, I don't actually think I realized how, quite how dark the push was or, or, or what the push was. You know, oftentimes I think this is true for writers. You don't really realize what you have until someone feeds it back to you, you know, until someone sort of tells you what you have. Um, and that was definitely the case with the push, right? I didn't quite realize what it was, you know, until it started getting in the hands of agents and that sort of thing. And and then I, I could kind of see it in a different way. Mm-hmm. What have you learned since then? It's been a while. It's been a, been a, been a few years. What um what are there are there any concrete lessons you feel like you've picked up um, with mm-hmm. with you know two published novels out now? Hmm. You know, I think. I think what I've learned is that um, you really talk, alluding to the to the question you just asked in the conversation we just had. I really believe that you just you have to write the thing that is a 
that you are obsessed with. You know, you have to write this, like whatever you can't stop thinking about, whatever thing you are totally consumed with thinking about, like that is the thing I want to write about. And, and that, that, that very well might be different than whatever's selling out there or whatever's hot or whatever, you know, the trend is like, you, you really can't think about that. You have to just write the story that only you can tell, you know, that's burning in you. Um, and it's funny because when I look back, I think, um, you know, if I had tried to write a book before I wrote the push, like, I, I don't know what I would have written about because that, that mm. was just, that, that was the story. Like when, when I became a mother and had this experience of motherhood and it was so different and it was so challenging, like that is where the story came from. And I don't know what I would have written about before then, but I did, I, I always loved writing, but like, but I knew that, that there was like a story there, that there was something there, you know, at that time in my life. Um, and so it's interesting. And I, I feel like that now, like I'm always writing about the thing that the, my, my biggest fear or the thing that gives me the most anxiety or whatever that obsession is. I, th I think that's where the best writing comes from. And so I think my writing experience has just sort of reinforced that for me, you know, that, that that's where the best stuff is going to come from. And you cannot think about the writers you're compared to or the writer you're trying to be like, or whatever's selling or whatever's working up there. Cause that's going to change tomorrow. <laughs> you know, that will change. Whatever is working will change tomorrow. Um, so I think, I think I've learned that I've had this real conviction about that over the years. Uh, so it's safe to say you're still writing about the dark corners of the psyche. I am. I am. I am. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine not writing about that. I think that's always where I'll go. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take that as a promise then. <laughs> thank you. Ashley, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Nathan. This has been such a good conversation. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. I have been speaking with Ashley Odrain, author of the new novel, The Whispers. Find it and all of the books we spoke about, including the book before this one, The Push, which I assume you've already read because everyone has, at Kobo and Conversations, home on the web, kobo.com slash conversation. There is a link in the show notes. Uh, subscribe in your podcast player to catch every episode. And if you enjoyed this one, share it with someone whose life looks just too perfect to be true. Deep down, this might be just the thing they need to get through the day. Kobo in Conversation is produced and often hosted by me, Nathan Maharaj. Thank you for listening.